I want to I want to start off. We're going to jump into our series in Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter six, the back end of chapter six, chapter seven today. We've just been kind of systematically walking through the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, just kind of raise your hand. We'd love to put a Bible in your hand today and give you one uh, that you can take and keep and hang on to. Um, but one of the things we started at the beginning of the series, we we remember we set a table out here up front. Uh, and we kind of just said, hey, if uh, what uh, the picture of the church is a table, and what the church does is everybody brings what they have and brings it to the table. I like it. How many, we, we've got a lot of people working on Bibles for you. We're, it's, it's happening. There's like 15 people bringing you Bibles. We are making sure we're getting the Bibles. Well done, guys. Well done. Uh, we, we, uh, we, we set the table. We just kind of said the picture of the church is, is what we do as a congregation is we bring what we have and we say, here it is. And we offer it up to the community and we say, what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. And we share. And we saw this as like a, a huge characteristic in the book of Acts was they shared everything. There's actually a passage that says there was no one in their community that had any needs. Like how remarkable is that? That the community of faith was loving each other so much and so self-sacrificial with what they had that there was nobody that was even like experiencing needs among them. There was nobody who was struggling. There was nobody who was battling all these things because they loved each other so much. They were meeting each other's needs and they were doing this in the community as well. They were meeting the needs of everybody around in the community. And so one of the things that we did was we just said, hey, there's a little chalkboard out front as you walk in. Uh, and, and we put up just a, a little sign that said, we're just going to carry this over and just see how long this lasts. It just says, I have and I need. And we just started posting little post-it notes on the board, just saying, hey, I've got this and here it is. Um, by the way, the Hardmans have a washing machine sitting in our garage that I would love to give to anybody. It's a really nice one. It's a front-loading one. It's free. We don't want to put it on Craigslist and do that thing. We'd love to give it to somebody in the community. That's on the board out there. So first one, first service, like somebody sprint out there after service and grab it, right? We've got, so we've been putting these things up there of just like, hey, this is something that we have that we'd love to give. And I've loved to look at all the cool things that are up there. Um, we've got some people that have put like, I've got time and I would love to pray for you. Like, how cool is that? Like, somebody just saying, like, I've got some time. And, I, and we talked about, like, bringing our five capitals to the Lord, right? So bringing our financial capital, bringing our resources, bringing our possessions, bringing what we have, bringing our time, bringing our physical capital, which is, like, I have time to serve. I have time to, to, to jump in on some things. I can help you carry heavy things to the third floor. Like, that might be a good one for some of you young guys. Julian, come on, right? Some of you put some of that stuff up there. Like, I can carry heavy things, you know? And so there's this cool thing that's happening. So this morning, I'm in my office and I'm praying and I'm just kind of getting ready for the service, looking over my notes. And, 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 and somebody from the church walks in and it's somebody that I hadn't met before. It said, I just started coming to the church a couple weeks ago. And when you preached this sermon about the board that's out front and talked about the table and all these different things, I was sitting there and I was thinking, well, I need a car. But that's like way too big of an ask. So I'm not, I'm like, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna ask that. And, and, but, but her friend said, just put it up there. Like, what's the worst that can happen? You don't get a car? Like, you already don't have one. So like, like just, just put it up there and see what happens. And so uh, here's the note. It said, I need a car so I can get my kids uh, to a school and to work, and I need prayer. Uh, and uh, she said, uh, this week, somebody from the church called her. Um, by the way, somebody who's been coming to the church for three weeks, right? So this isn't somebody who's been here for like, since the beginning of time, right? This is somebody who's new to the church also and said, we got a car, you want it? And gave her a car. Um, and I, I tell this story for a couple different reasons. One is because I think it's a huge encouragement for us. Uh, I just had a sense this morning as we were praying. Every Sunday before the service starts, the, the worship team gathers together and everybody who's kind of involved in the service and we just kind of gather together and we pray. And what we do during that prayer time is we just kind of listen to the Lord. We're just kind of, oh, Lord, is there anything that you want to say to us this morning? Is there any way that you want to direct us? Is there anything you want to encourage us in? Is there anything that you want us to bring to the congregation that we're forgetting or that we need to be reminded of? And we just kind of seek the Lord. And in the midst of that, we just talked about, I, I, we just all had a sense that the Lord this morning wants to just say, I'm pleased with you guys. Like, good things are happening here. Like my, I have, my, my pleasure is in seeing you gather together. And so I know that things are hard sometimes. I know it's hard starting a new church. I know there's challenges in it. I know that we're $15,000 over budget and we gotta figure out how to make that work. Like there's lots of things that stress me out about the church. 
But as I, as I get a sense for today, I just sense the Lord's pleasure over us, guys. And I want us to experience that corporately of like, you're doing the right thing. Like keep, keep giving, keep self-sacrificially loving one another, keep proclaiming the gospel in word and truth, keep caring for one another, keep reaching out beyond yourself, keep thinking and looking and trying to serve the community abroad. And, and I'm here and I'm working and I'm in the midst of everything. And so in Acts chapter six and after uh, chapter seven, what we see is we see a picture of a moment where we're tempted to believe that God is not present. So one of our core values and axioms that we kind of hang over everything that we do here at Grace is that God is always present and at work. And when I say that, I recognize that nobody ever disagrees with that, right? Nobody ever comes to me and is like, no, I don't, I'm not so sure about that God's presence thing, right? We, we agree with that in principle, but we don't live that out. So we agree with it in our head, but in our heart, we don't necessarily live that out to, to say like, I believe and trust that God is present at work. It's easy for us to believe and trust that God is present at work when we're on the mountaintop. I've been gathering with my boys and we've been walking through kind of these seven principles, which we call the seven foundations in which we build a lot of our discipleship processes on. And I met with my, uh, my son yesterday and we talked about God is always present at work. And he said, dad, it's easy for me to recognize God's presence when everything's going right, right? When I'm the star of the basketball team and I score a bunch of points, when my grades are great, when everybody likes me, when things are going well, when I go to like the big uh, fallout camp is coming up for our students this winter, when I go to the big camp and there's a band and the, there's a preacher coming and everybody gets excited and there's those Holy Spirit tinglies are happening inside of me. Like those are the moments where it's like, yeah, God is present and God's at work. He said, but it's hard for me to recognize God's presence when I don't score in the basketball game when I miss all my shots, when I fail my math test or multiple math tests as it's going right now, or, or when, I, when I'm struggling to, to, to sense God's spirit or God's presence. And, 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 and this is how we often live. We live as if God's presence is dependent on whether it's good. And we think that when everything's good, when everything's happy, when everything's great, when everything's going well, God is present, God is at work, God is moving. But when we're in the valley, when we're struggling, when there's challenges, when there's difficulty, when where everything doesn't feel like a win, then suddenly God is absent in those moments. And one of the foundations that we believe in is that in those moments when we're experiencing the desert, when we're experiencing the valley, when we're not winning, when struggles are coming, what God is doing in those moments is he's shaping us and teaching us to become more like him that he is just as present in the valley as he is on the mountain. And, and the call of our lives, we just sang about this, the call of our lives is to learn to praise him in all of our seasons, to learn to worship him, to learn to honor him, to learn to turn to him, to learn to listen to him, and to say to him, I wanna invite you in to the ordinary. We don't wanna miss you in the ordinary. If we only learn, and I, I, we always talk about this with Meredith and with, with Tater in thinking about our student ministry, we don't wanna train our students to only see God in the big event. Like if we teach our kids that the only time they see God is when they go to like the big camp or they go to like the big event or they go to this thing, then, then they have a faith that's dependent on somebody conjuring up something great for them to do it. And so we've got to create these Mount Sinai moments over and over and over again, which creates this pressure on the church to we've got to create this thing. We've got to conjure up something great this week so that we can experience the presence of God. We actually believe that the presence of God is here, is abundant, and is waiting for us. We don't say, God showed up, we awaken to his presence. So if I preach a really bad sermon, guys, this is really good news for me, right? If I preach a terrible sermon, God still showed up, right? If the service isn't like the greatest service that we've ever been to and, and the worship, they sang all the songs that I love, God's present and he's at work. The issue isn't God is refusing to show up. The issue is we aren't present to him. And so in Acts chapter six, what we get a picture of is this beautiful thing that begins to happen. It, it, it's, it's this picture of second generation leaders. So here's what's happened in, in Acts. We've seen Jesus said to his disciples, go to a room and wait and my helper, the Holy Spirit will show up. 
And so they gather in a room in Jerusalem waiting. The Holy Spirit shows up at Pentecost. 3,000 are added to their name. Amazing things begin to happen. Signs and wonders all over the place. They start creating these rhythms that the early church is built on. And so remember, we've talked about that if the gospels are a picture of how we individually connect to Jesus, Acts is a picture of how we corporately connect to the Holy Spirit. And so we see the Spirit moving and working in these incredible ways all throughout Acts. And and what we see in Acts is if you cover up the names of who's doing the work, you would think that Jesus is still doing all this stuff. You would think that Jesus is the one that's doing the miracles. Because, Because the disciples are just continuing to do the things they saw Jesus do. So they're just behaving in the way that their Savior asked them to behave. They're just trusting that when I step out, that God's going to show up. And so what we see in the beginning of Acts 6 is the disciples say, this has grown beyond us. There's now 5,000 added to their number, and there's more being added every single day. And so they've become the first megachurch, right? There's this giant thing. There's people everywhere, and this is hard for us to manage. And so they start assigning people to do other work. They start saying, like, this is too big for us, and whenever things get too big for us, the answer for us is not try harder or do more or get better or figure it out. The answer is always discipleship. Discipleship is the engine that drives the church. And so we talked about, we're not going to just pile up the cart with more stuff. We're going to make more disciples. And so they created this next generation of disciples that they began pouring into. And these disciples were serving tables. They were setting tables. They were feeding the people around the community. They were meeting needs. And one of those disciples was Stephen, who we're going to talk about today. And they built this future through discipleship. So what began to happen here, and and might I suggest that if, if, if there is any possibility that a great movement of faith is going to start, it's always going to start with discipleship. It's always going to start with us investing in the next generation, teaching them to do what Jesus did, and empowering them to go do the things that Jesus did. And so this is what begins to happen. Um, A few years ago, uh, a guy named Derek Seavers did a TED Talk, and many of you have probably seen this. Um, But it's about how movements are started. It's three minutes long, and I want to share it with you right now. It's a little ridiculous, but it's also a little fun. So we're going to watch this video, and as we watch this video, I want you to see the, the principles that he's talking about about movements apply to the early church here in Acts as well. in under three minutes and dissect some lessons from it. First, of course you know, a leader needs the guts to stand out and be ridiculed. (laughs) But what he's doing is so easy to follow. So here's his first follower with a crucial role. He's going to show everyone else how to follow. Now notice that the leader embraces him as an equal. So now it's not about the leader anymore. It's about them, plural. Now there he is calling to his friends. Now, if you notice that the first follower is actually an underestimated form of leadership in itself, it takes guts to stand out like that. The first follower is what transforms a lone nut into a leader. (laughs) And here comes a second follower. Now it's not a lone nut, it's not two nuts. Three is a crowd, and a crowd is news. So a movement must be public. It's important to show not just the leader, but the followers, because you find that new followers emulate the followers, not the leader. Now here come two more people, and immediately after, three more people. Now we've got momentum. This is the tipping point. Now we've got a movement. (laughs) So notice that as more people join in, it's less risky. So those that were sitting on the fence before now have no reason not to. They won't stand out. They won't be ridiculed, but they will be part of the in-crowd if they hurry. So, <laughs> over the next minute, you'll see all of the, uh, those that prefer to stick with the crowd, because eventually they would be ridiculed for not joining in. And that's how you make a movement. But, let's recap some lessons from this. So, first, if you are the type, like the shirtless dancing guy, that is standing alone, remember the importance of nurturing your first few followers as equals. So it's clearly about the movement, not you. (laughs) Okay, but we might have missed the real lesson here. The biggest lesson, if you noticed, did you catch it? Is that leadership is over-glorified. 
that yes, it was the shirtless guy was first, and he'll get all the credit, but it was really the first follower that transformed the lone nut into a leader. So as we're told that we should all be leaders, that would be really ineffective. If you really care about starting a movement, have the courage to follow and show others how to follow. And when you find a lone nut doing something great, have the guts to be the first one to stand up and join in. And what a perfect place to do that, Ted. Thanks. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? I, I love that video. Isn't that awesome? It's so good. The, the, I, the, one, it's just terrible, terrible dancing, right? It's, it really is. It's like Elaine Bennis from Seinfeld, right? It's just so, so, so bad. And everybody's joining in and jumping in and, and being a part of that. Um, but, but this is a picture of what's happening in the New Testament is there's been people that are joining. And as one joins, another joins, and another joins, and they all start jumping in into what's happening. And they start risking it all to jump into this. And what happens in Acts 6 and Acts 7 is there's a real turning point. There's a really significant turning point that begins to happen. It's the first time we're introduced to the Apostle Paul. All right? So Paul shows up in this story who becomes a, a, a central figure in the New Testament. The second thing that we see happening is Jesus's command of his disciples was this. He said, I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we're in chapter 7 at this point, and they've not even thought about moving outside of Jerusalem. Right? So they've been firmly rooted in their hometown, in their home place, in what's comfortable. And sometimes what begins to happen is crisis becomes the catalyst that moves us out. And so we begin to see the people of God discerning and moving towards outward and pushing out towards the next city um, and moving towards something else. It's important also to notice that the religious leaders are the ones who are always opposing Jesus's movement. And so as we read this, what we see is this is the institutional church that wants to kill the disciples. It's the pastors of their day that are saying, we wanna stop this movement. And there becomes this kind of mob mentality where the crowd takes over. And any time in, in the history of our faith where there's been a mob mentality or a crowd mentality, we have gone the wrong way. Our faith is not built on following the crowd. Our faith is built on listening and discerning to where Jesus is leading us and following him, even when it's challenging, even when it's difficult, and even when the crowd is turned a completely different way and heading in a completely different direction. Right now in our culture, I think there is a huge crowd mentality. There is a mob mentality in our faith, and there is the institutional church that is driving us to places that I'm not really comfortable going sometimes. And there are faithful followers of Jesus who are saying, I think there's a different way. I think there's a better way. And I think our job is to um, succinctly and humbly and quietly listen to where the Spirit of God is leading and follow him into that rather than following the crowd. It's far less about choosing sides than it is about following Jesus. And every time I log into my computer and get on social media, I see people from every side and every angle asking me to choose a side. You gotta choose my side, you gotta choose this side. This side's wrong, these people are wrong, this group is wrong. And there's all kinds of polarizations, there's all kinds of dehumanization, there's all kinds of demonization of other different people groups and different people. And, and as we look into all of that, we've gotta understand that the disciples were experiencing the exact same tension, the exact same powers to be, and what they chose to do was always step into the way of Jesus. They chose to humbly, quietly, obediently go where Christ was leading us. And crisis became the catalyst that moves them. Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean into your own understandings, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. What we do is we trust in the Lord. We follow him where he's leading. So let's jump in. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. There is a ton of passages that we've got to cover here. Uh, Stephen actually preaches the longest sermon in the New Testament which is incredibly interesting. Like, it's not Peter that preaches the longest sermon. It's not Paul that preaches the longest sermon. It's this guy whose job is to set the tables. It's this new disciple whose job is to, like, make sure everybody's getting fed that preaches the longest sermon in the New Testament, 50 verses. Um, but in Acts 6, it says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed wonders and signs among the people. He's doing the same things that the disciples did who were doing the same things that Jesus did. He's just following in the pattern of obedience. But opposition arose. 
Anytime the church faithfully steps into what God is calling them to, anytime God begins to move, God begins to stir, signs and wonders and miraculous things begin to happen, there is a sense of opposition that comes to oppose that. As a pastor, I have recognized this over and over and over again. When the church begins to grow, when faithfulness begins to arise out of his people, when fruit begins to be um, popping up from the ground, all of a sudden we start to face opposition. We start to face discouragement. We start to face challenges. We're actually in a season where we're starting to see some opposition because I feel like the church is growing and moving and great things are happening, but there are challenges that go with that. So opposition arose, however, and look at where it came from. It came from the institutional church. It came from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, it was called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So we've seen this in Acts before, right? As Peter was brought before the, the religious leaders, they said, we can't debate them. We can't win our debates with them because these guys know the word, and we could tell that they've been with Jesus, The same thing is happening for Stephen. So what they did, verse 11, is they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. This is the same strategy they used with Jesus, right? And they seized him and they brought him before the Sanhedrin, same group that that Jesus was brought before. They produced false witnesses who testified and they said, this fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, will change the customs Moses handed down to them. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This, is, this brings us back to Moses. Remember Moses when he came out of the presence of God? There was a sense of God's presence on him. It's a picture of Jesus. Well, if you notice how much verses 6 and 7 mimics what Jesus went through. There's a picture. Remember Jesus said, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross and follow me. You're going to have to go through. The disciples were saying, we want to sit at your right hand. We want to be a leader among you. And he said, if you do, you're going to have to bear the same cup that I bear. You're going to have to carry the same burdens that I carry. And Stephen begins to step into this. He's the first follower who's stepping into this space of saying, I'm willing to go all the way to the places that Jesus went. I'm willing to proclaim the gospel even when it causes myself harm. I'm willing to be courageous. I'm willing to step into places where I'm not really comfortable. This is just an ordinary guy. This is not like the Harvard-educated guy of their time. This is an ordinary servant in the church. He's a deacon at the local church who's all of a sudden standing before the religious leaders of the day, the greatest theologians of his time, the people who set the law and define the law, the people who write books, the people who preach sermons in front of everybody. He's standing in front of all of them and they say his wisdom is so sharp we can't compete against it and so Stephen became the first follower of the second generation of disciples and here's some tips if we want to become like Stephen here's some things that I see in him the first thing is that he spent time with Jesus there's this connection with Jesus. He obviously, if you read his sermon, and I would challenge all of you this week, uh, Acts 7, verses 1 through 50, just, just dwell on that passage this week. If you're doing your, your quiet time with the Lord, if you're spending time with the Lord, just spend some time in that text and look at how rooted and how deeply he knows the word of God. He has spent time in the word of God. He knows God. He gets around people who look like Jesus to him. He gets around the disciples and says, I want to be a part of what's happening here. I always say to young people, if you want to figure out how to follow Jesus, find somebody that looks like Jesus and just stay close to them. Like just say to them, hey, can we go to lunch occasionally? Will you take me out to breakfast every once in a while? Can I go over to your house and hang out with you and spend time with you? Can I watch how you care for your family? Can I watch how you talk to your wife, how you spend time with your kids? Can I see your life up close? Because it's one thing to see religious leaders preaching up front with like their cape flying in the wind, doing awesome things and talking about the Bible. I've spent a bunch of hours on this stuff I'm gonna talk to you guys about today. It's another thing to be in their house when their kids are screaming and everything's going on and it's nonsense that's happening and to watch real life happen. Real life is found in the ordinary. It's found in following people and stepping into the spaces where God is with them. For us, that meant we quit a job at a really big church that we loved. And we moved to Pauly's Island, South Carolina because we wanted to be close to people that looked like Jesus for us. 
I, like, I already had my career, I had my job, we had our corner office, we had everything all figured out, and, and we just kind of felt a sense of, like, we just need to get close to some people who look like Jesus to us and understand how to do some things that we don't, because I felt like I was just running into leadership lids over and over and over again, and so we moved our family at great cost to hang out in this space and to learn from leaders who look like Jesus from us. Do whatever you can to be discipled sacrifice whatever it takes to be in the presence of people who look like Jesus to you. And if you don't know who looks like Jesus to you, come see me because I know some people in here who look like him to me and I'll tell you who they are. There's like two of us. No, I'm just kidding. There's a, <laughs> there are so many people in here that are exhibiting the characteristics of Jesus who act like Jesus in my life, who encourage me, who urge me on, who sharpen me, who challenge me, who love me and serve me and care for our family. And every time I hang out with them, it's like there's a gravitas about them. Have you ever done that? You hang out with somebody and it's like you almost catch what they have. Like there's a little Holy Spirit that just rubs off on you just because you ate dinner at Wendy's with them, right? I love those people. Those are the people that I want to be around and I want to hang out with. The third thing is, is Stephen wasn't afraid to take some risks. He wasn't afraid to step into places where God has called him. I, I was on an airplane a few weeks ago and uh, my, I, I, I do some coaching and training of pastors uh, as, as kind of my other job, my side job here. And, and I travel a lot for that. And so I was on this plane and we were boarding the plane and there was this man behind me who um, was having a stroke, like just fell over. Uh, onto the ground, was laying on the ground, and they're shouting, like, does anybody know a doctor? Does anybody know a doctor? And they're running to get a doctor, and everybody's kind of freaking out. And I'm just sitting there thinking, like, I'm not a doctor, but I, I know this guy who's a healer. His name's Jesus, and, like, I think he could do something here. And I had this debate, like, everybody on the plane is watching, right? So there's a whole plane. It was full. It was loaded. We were just getting ready to take off. And I had this debate in my head, like, how weird is it for me to start praying for this guy right now? How strange is it for me to, like, stand up and say, I'm not a doctor, but I'm a pastor. Do you care if I pray? And I'll be honest, like, there was a moment where I was like, I'm just going to put my headphones on and pray silently. Like, the Lord hears my prayers. Um, but I felt like the Lord was calling me to take a risk. And this, so I, I just turned around and I said, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but I'm a pastor. Do you mind if I pray? And his wife looked at me and said, will you please pray? Like, please pray. And I just waited until a doctor was there, and I just prayed for him. And I was getting a lot of amens from the, from the people that were sitting around me. So like, the churchgoers were, like, joining in, and we had a little church service there. Um, I wish I could tell you, like, he snapped out of it and, like, suddenly was healed. Um, uh, we didn't see that happen. Uh, he was taken off in a stretcher. He was a little more coherent when he was taken off the plane. I don't know if God healed him. I don't know what happened. But I know this, that part of my spiritual journey was taking that risk. Like, I don't know if it did anything for anybody else on that plane, but there was power in it for me that I was taking the step of faith, that I was taking the risk, that I was stepping out and saying, I trust you, Lord. I trust that you're a healer. I trust that you're the great physician. I actually trust you more than whoever the doctor is that's coming. I believe that you hold this man's life in your hands, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to proclaim it, and I'm going to name it to all the people on the airplane. And it was funny, I became the pastor of that flight. As I was getting off the flight, like all these people kept coming to me like, hey, thank you for praying. Thank you for doing that. I go to church. Or like this one guy was like, I used to go to church. Uh, and like, there's all, it's, it's, that's always the conversation with the pastor. It's like, I used to go to church, but I don't go to church anymore. Like, well, go to church. Like, that'd be good, right? <laughs> Let me pray for you, right? Uh, but, but there's this thing that's going on where he just steps into the risk and he doesn't back down when oppositions come. It's this real simple passage in Isaiah that says, we are not a people who shrink back. I love that passage. Because there's this temptation that when we follow Jesus, difficult times happen, opposition comes, challenges step into our lives, and our temptation is to shrink back and say, maybe we should back off. Maybe that truth was too big for us to tell. Maybe that proclamation was too bold Maybe our prayers are too big. Maybe our expectations of God are bigger than they should be. And scripture says, no, 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 no. We are not a people who shrink back. We step in to the opposition and we meet it with the presence and the power of the living God who's available and present and is always working in our lives. So Stephen goes for it, 50 verses. 
It's one of the most powerful sermons in all of the New Testament. I, I suggest that you read it. He walks through the history of the whole Bible. He walks through the life of Abraham, of Joseph, of Moses, of David. Um, he, 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 he has everybody agreeing with him. So imagine this. This is, this is also what Jesus would do. Jesus was such a great storyteller that he would tell a story and everybody would be nodding. Everybody would be with him. Everybody would be right there with him. And then suddenly everybody would want to kill him. Um, which, by the way, I feel like that as a pastor sometimes. No, I'm just being honest. There are truths that I can tell that everyone in here will nod their head about. And there are things that I can say that will stir up the crowd in anger. Neither of them are less true than the other. Does that make sense? There are ways that we can talk about things where everybody's with you, every head is nodding. So everybody's nodding, everybody's with Stephen, everybody's excited. He's talking about how God is always sending his people out. He's talking about how God is the missionary God on a missionary journey. And he's thinking about how do we bless everybody and not just the religious elite. And there's this great shift that happens in the book of Acts where the people of God begin to see that Jesus came for everyone, that the Savior wasn't just for a certain people group. It wasn't just for the religious elite. It wasn't just for the church growers. It wasn't just for the really holy folks. It was for the broken people, the wounded people, the hurting people, the people who were experiencing poverty and, and, and who needed a savior to show up, people who didn't have anything. They were the marginalized of society. Jesus came for all of us and this huge shift is taking place. And so for 50 verses, he's laying out the history of a missional God and every room in the head is nodding and then he gets to verse 51. I had a mentor once that said to me, great leaders do this. They always share the last 10%. Because you know you're having like a, a challenging conversation with somebody. You gotta like talk to somebody. You gotta like do one of those grace and truth talks or you gotta share something that's difficult with them. You gotta tell them a little bit about themselves and you're always tempted to share 90% of the truth and hold 10% back and the 10% is probably the thing that they need to hear the most. Stephen doesn't hold back. Here's what he says, you stiff-necked people. And I imagine everybody's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised, which is huge because what he's doing is he's challenging their faith heritage. He's challenging their heritage when he says that. He says, you are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet that your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you betrayed and murdered him. You who received the law and were given through the angels but have not obeyed it. Here's what he says. Listen, this problem is not a problem that's outside of the institutional church. It's not a problem that is a problem for somebody else. It's not a problem that exists for the unrighteous or the unholy. The problem is right here. When he says, you stiff-necked people, that is a specific reference to Gentiles. And what he's doing is he's saying, your heritage is not what makes you a follower of Jesus. Because you're an American does not make you a follower of Jesus. Because you grew up in the South does not make you a follower of Jesus. Because your grandma drug you to church does not make you a follower of Jesus. And this is what he's saying. It's not our heritage. It's not who your mama was. It's not who brought you to church. It's something so much bigger than that. You've always been the one that have resisted the spirit of God. You've always been the ones who have, who have sinned and fallen short. And you want to look at the world and say, everybody else has fallen short except us. The problem is outside of us. And I want to say loudly and clearly that the problem in our American culture is that when the people of God fail to bear fruit, the world goes hungry. The problem doesn't exist outside of us. The problem exists right here. We've become comfortable, we've become complacent, we've become happy to gather in our place and create polarized systems of us versus them and create this mentality that says, well, these people or those people or that people, instead of looking at the world and saying, I wanna love them, I wanna serve them, and I wanna give them a car. Right? Our theology always leads us to our practices. What we believe about God determines how we live out our faith. And so if we believe that God is present and at work and is moving for Americans who go to church and are white, then we're missing the point.
What we believe always determines how we live and how we work and how we move. And the people of God, the religious leaders, the institutional leaders of the time, what they believed about God was that God existed for them. That God was there to give them more power. That God was there to lift them up. And there's a huge ideological difference between what the religious elite were saying and what the disciples were doing. Verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at them, which is also always a response to Gentiles, by the way. Stiff-necked people, and they're like doing the same thing to each other. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to the heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, which is what my daughter does sometimes when I'm trying to tell her to do things. (laughs) Very mature religious elite. Uh, They dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. That's like picking up rocks and killing him with rocks. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, if you read that sermon in verses 1 through 50, What's really interesting about this is all of Paul's theology is in that sermon. This young man who right now is a persecutor of the church, but later becomes the greatest missionary the world has ever known, the greatest theologian other than Jesus that the world has ever known, is sitting here listening to this sermon, taking everybody's coat. He's like the coat bearer for the people that are going to kill this guy. Like, hey, I'll hold your coats. Here's a rock. Like, it's like a, check, like a coat check. Like, you, you give me your jacket, I'll give you a, a rock that's like a good size. He's standing there doing all of these things. And I gotta believe that this is foundational to what he begins to believe. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Just like, how, this, it's the model of what Jesus did. It's a picture of what Jesus did. They took him outside the city. They killed him. In the middle of being killed, he looked up to the father and said, Father, forgive them. He's doing everything that Jesus did. So I wanna give us just a couple real quick lessons that we can learn from the religious leaders because I think what this text is doing and I think what we see through the book of Acts is this correlation of here is God's people and here's what they're doing and here's what the religious elite and the institutional church is doing and who are we gonna be? It's a question that we all have to ask. Here's the first. The religious leaders could receive encouragement, but not warning. They loved verses. They loved 1 through 50 of the sermon. They loved receiving the God's word. And God's word always operates in grace and in truth. Right? There's a side of it that is like, this is, this is so great. This is good news. I can't believe this is true. And there's a side of it that's challenging. There's a side of it that's difficult. There's a side of it that's hard. And what, we, what scripture says of Jesus is Jesus was always full of both grace and truth. So his grace was never not true and his truth was never not full of grace. That's the posture that we take with the world. So we don't hammer people with the truth and try and get them to believe. We exhibit the posture of Jesus, which is here's the truth and here's what's in the truth. The truth is invitational. The truth is good news. Giving Jesus everything we have is hard, but it's actually the greatest thing we can do with our life because he has a better plan for us than we do. He knows better of how to live than we do. He's got a better strategy for this world than we do. And so surrender, which feels impossible and difficult, is actually the greatest news we could receive. We're part of this story. We're part of this heritage. But as we grow in in, in Christ, what we learn to do is we learn to humbly listen to those who challenge us. So I've told you guys before that I, I pastored a college church for many years. Uh, and I, w- I feel like I've always been pretty good at listening to people who are like constructive criticism, right? There's criticism that's not so constructive. You know who you are, right? Uh, and then there's, then there's constructive criticism. I feel like I'm pretty good at listening to constructive criticism. I feel like I've always been pretty good. Like I can receive that. But when I started pastoring this church of college students, there was a bunch of 18-year-olds that wanted to give me constructive criticism. And that really, like, that was really hard for me to receive. Can I be honest? Like, I would be like, well, listen, you don't even know how to, like, eat a healthy meal. Like, you, I don't know that I can receive this truth from you. Like, you don't know how to take care of yourself right now. Like, look at what you're wearing. You look like an idiot, right? Like, you, you just told me that you applied for a job and you sent emojis to the guy that was interviewing you. Like, I don't know that I can actually receive from you like constructive criticism. 
And, and, and I learned in there, like, because I would get these kids that would come up to me and say, hey, what about this? Or hey, when you were preaching about this, I think you said this wrong. And my instinct every time was like, mm-mm, no way. And I had to learn to be humble enough to say, Lord, is there any truth in this? Is there anything that you need for me to apply? And what I've learned to do with constructive criticism, because it does come, believe it or not, it comes as a pastor. What I've learned to do is just receive it all and take it and say, Lord, would you search my heart? If there's anything you want me to learn from this, if there's anything you want me to grow in from this, would you help me to receive it and apply it? And Lord, if this is not true of me, will you allow this not to name me or not to become my identity? And would you allow me the strength to wipe the dust off my feet and move on to the next thing? And if I don't know which category it falls into, I seek wise counsel. Right? We've got a local board of leaders, Harden and Ryan, and we've got great friends in here of, of leaders who I grab and, and ask, like, hey, is there any of this in me? Sarah gets that question all the time, like, hey, is this true? Am I, am I being a jerk here? <laughs> Did I say this wrong? Is there a, you know, and um, she's good at telling me the truth. And so are Harden and Ryan. And so are, I, like, we've got friends that are able to do that. And so when you're challenged with something, are you able to actually receive it? Are you able to actually take it in? And you're able to say, Maybe there's some truth to this. Are you growing in your ability to humbly receive God's word in grace and truth from others? Are you growing in your ability to receive a challenge from the Lord? Are you able to hear hard truths? There's a lot of people, I'll just be honest with you. I'm noticing this in Cobb County. There's a lot of people who will visit a church until a hard truth is proclaimed and then they'll find the next church. And what they want is not somebody to preach the word of God. They want somebody to sign off on their life. And we're gonna preach the word of God. We're gonna walk through it verse by verse. We're gonna look at what God's saying. And I hope that you're challenged sometimes in here. I hope that we're not just gathering together every week to feel good about ourselves and give each other some hugs and hand out cars, right? I, I, hope, I, I hope that we're feeling challenged. I hope that we're feeling like I, I still have room to grow. I hope that repentance and belief flows out of who we are. I hope our identity is being shaped into the likeness of Christ. We're, I, I hope that there's more baptisms because people will say, like, I, I need to be baptized. I haven't been baptized. I need to be obedient, so I'm gonna step into this. Like, I hope that we step into those challenges because the disciples did. Peter was able to look at his life and say, I'm not where I wanna be. I'm not who I hoped I would be, but I want to be shaped by you, Jesus. And so will you teach me? Will you guide me? Will you lead me? The second thing is the religious leaders wanted power rather than wanting to empower. The church has an interesting relationship with power throughout church history. So if you've ever studied church history, you will understand that the church has done terrible things with power. That the church of God throughout its history, when it has been in the center in the moment of power and held positions of power, it has not used that power well. But when it has operated on the fringes and on the outside, the movement of Christ has spread rapidly and amazingly. Right now, there are far more disciples of Jesus growing out of countries where Jesus is restricted, where it's difficult to get access to the word of God, where you could actually get in trouble for preaching the word of God, in those spaces, it feels like the movement of Christ grows a little more rapidly than in the places where we hold the positions of power. And here's the thing, those who hold power never wanna give up power. It's a very, very dangerous thing. When we're in power, when we, when we find ourselves in positions of power, our job is to listen to the voices of those who are powerless and do everything we can to empower them. It's to hand off our power to others. It's to serve those around us. It's to learn to use our power, not for ourselves, but for others. My little girl's 10. Uh, this week is her gotcha day, uh, which means eight years ago, I held her for the first time in my hands in a little orphanage in Ethiopia. Uh, she is a little ball of power. Right? And I apologize to those of you who know her um, because we're working on it, right? And she will tell you what she thinks. She will tell you what she believes. 
She will overpower other kids. I'm sorry, parents, if my daughter's done. I think there was a ping pong game earlier today. I apologize about that, right? I, I see her just, she just uses this power and we're constantly trying to disciple her because here's the thing. I don't want her to lose her power or give up her power. I don't want her to diminish her strength. I don't want anyone to tell her because you're a female, you can't lead and you can't be strong and you can't be powerful. I wanna teach her to use her power for others and not herself. I wanna train her to lift others up with the strength that she has. I wanna teach her to use her words and her wit and her leadership and her strength to lay down that power to empower others and lift them up. This is what Jesus taught over and over and over again. He said the rulers of the Gentiles, what they do is they lord their power over, over others, but not so among us. That's not the way we lead. We don't lead from positions of power. We don't lead from positions of authority. We don't lead from positions of strength. We lead from a place of empowerment where we lay down whatever power we have on behalf of the powerless, the marginalized, and the less. And this happens for us. We've got to acknowledge, guys, this happens for us right here. I've been here a year and a half. Do you know the two sermons that I've been most criticized for that got people angry? that had people leaving the church and frustrated with me. It was when I taught about how we need to stand with our minority brothers and sisters and care for them. It's when I taught about how we need to recognize that white privilege exists and that we're a part of systematic racism and that we need to repent and we need to listen to the voices of our brothers and sisters. And I received more anger and hatred and frustration from that sermon than anything else I've ever preached. The second one was when I talked about women in leadership and how we need to empower women, how Jesus's model for women was always to lift them up, always to place them into leadership, how the New Testament is full of stories of women leading in powerful, powerful ways. And our job as the church is not to diminish our sisters in Christ, but it's to lift them up. And I would suggest that the reason those got frustration is because it takes away the power from white men. We don't wanna lose our power. We don't wanna lose our power. And because we don't wanna lose our power, we fight back. We fight against that. We say, well, not all people are like that. Not everything works that way. When our job is to listen, our job is to listen. I, I, let me just say, like, if you don't believe white privilege exists, I just challenge you to find a minority brother and sister and sit with them and ask them about it. If you don't believe there's a problem with police brutality, find a minority brother and sister and ask them to tell you some stories of what's happened in their life. Listen to each other. Listen to each other and just receive and see what happens. There is a challenge with power and the religious leaders are always wanting to hold on to more power. They're wanting to make sure that they don't lose their power. They're terrified that if we lose our power, then something terrible is gonna happen. And what God is always saying, what Jesus is always saying is, step back, use your power to lift others up. Use your power to lift up everybody else around us. Next is the religious leaders wanted to blame others but never wanted to look at themselves. Their different belief about God caused them to create categories of us versus them. Categories of holy versus unholy. And Jesus, in this beautiful way, like stepped into those spaces in these really cool ways. So Jesus, um, the lepers of society, they're the most marginalized, the most forgotten. Um, they actually would, would have to shout out unclean, unclean when anybody came around them. Nobody was supposed to touch them. Nobody was supposed to care for them. And over and over and over again in scripture, what we see Jesus doing is touching the people you're not supposed to touch. Because Jesus believed this, when the presence of God touches what is unclean, it doesn't make the people of God unclean, it brings cleansing. And when we have this polarized view of us versus them, then we believe that there are areas of our community, there are areas of our city where we can't go, where we can't be a part of, there's things that we can't step into, because if we do, then we're gonna become unclean. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. There are no categories of sacred and secular. All of this is me. It's all my creation. Every single one of us are image bearers of the most high God. You have never come in contact with another human being who does not bear the image of the most high God. 
That person that you hate the most, that person who you despise the most, that person who is the most frustrating person in the world to you, that person who you don't want to invite to dinner at your house, that person is an image bearer of the Most High God. And so we can't draw lines and draw distinctions. We can't play God and be the judge and jury. The religious leaders wanted a localized God who served them. What they got was a missionary God who serves the world. And the outcome of that belief produced self-righteousness. The outcome of that belief produced so much pain. The last thing, the religious leaders had a misdirected passion and zeal. Nobody could say that the religious leaders weren't passionate. They were passionate about following the law, which is a good thing. We should be passionate about following the law. They were passionate about obeying the word of God, which is a good thing. We should do that. But whenever our love for God or, his, or the things of God turns into anger or bitterness or resentment or hatred or violence against each other, we're actually becoming a walking contradiction of what we claim to be. Their love of God caused them to murder, guys. Like, let's just receive that as it is. Their passion for the word of God, there was a justification system inside their head. Now, I'm trusting, I hope this is true, that none of us are trusting that our justification system allows us to murder somebody. But our justification does allow us to do other things. Their justification system allowed them to demonize, dehumanize, and kill another person. And they could work that out in their head and say, I'm being obedient and I'm being holy. And I want you to understand that that's how sin works. We're able to justify things. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the desert, he wasn't tempted by things that weren't half true. He was tempted by things that were half true. And he believed the half truth. And if he would have believed the half truth, it would have allowed him to step into places that God had never called him to. And what Jesus resisted on the desert, he claimed victory over on the cross. And that same victory is available to us. And so our love for our church, our love for theology, our love for our political parties, our love for obedience, our love for holiness, our love for truth allows us at times to demonize, dehumanize, and act poorly towards other people. And that's never the posture of Jesus. Jesus is never calling you to abuse somebody else. He's never calling you to build up resentment and hatred in your heart. He's actually calling us over and over and over again to repent. We say repentance is agreeing with God about what's real. He's challenging us to say, there's a better way to look at this. There's a better way to deal with this. Receive the truth that I have for you, the good news that I have for you, and let's live into that. 1 John 4.20 says, whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. It's a liar. So I want to wrap up. There's this beautiful image in the midst of this passage that I loved, and, and I, I noticed it this week as I was studying and preparing. In verse 55, I want to recognize this. It just says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to the heaven and saw the glory of God and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This is the only place in all of scripture where we see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Everywhere else, remember Jesus' posture? He's seated at the right hand of God. Scripture tells us that Jesus becomes an advocate for us. So when accusations come against us, right? Ben Hardman, he's jacked up. He's a sinner. He's done a lot of bad things. You should have known him in high school, right? All these different things. When those accusations rise up, Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father and says, nope, that's my guy. He's accepted me as his Lord and Savior. He's with me. There's no record of wrong. The slate has been wiped clean. My work on the cross and my resurrection took care of all of his sin and all of his brokenness. It took care of all of the wounds that he's caused others. It took care of all the things that he's done to use power for his own gain. It's taken all the things that he's done to hurt others and all the ways that he's acted against my will. It's all been covered by the blood of the lamb. 
And there's this beautiful moment where Stephen looks up at the heavens in this moment that he, as a second generation follower of Jesus, the first follower is being obedient and he sees Jesus not seated at the right hand of God, but standing there. And I think it's like this, Jesus saying, that's my guy. That's my guy. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I hoped would happen. That's what I believed in when I gave the keys of the kingdom to Peter and I said, do what I do was I hoped that this movement, this silly little dance would turn into more dancers and more dancers and more dancers and become this movement that was unstoppable because of the posture of the people who follow me, because of the presence of the almighty God who is doing signs and wonders, because of the courage, because of the trust, because of the forgiveness that they offer to one another. That's my people. And this morning as I was praying, guys, I just got a sense of God standing at the right hand of the Father looking at Grace Marietta and saying, that's my guys. That's my men and women in Marietta, and they may have a lot of problems, guys, we do. They may not have everything figured out, we don't. But they're faithfully following me. They're doing the best that they can day after day. They're putting one foot after another in obedience week after week. And those are my people. And so this morning as I was praying, I just sensed that the Lord wants you all to experience his pleasure over you today. That God is good that he's working, that in the midst of, of leaders who wanna use power and control to destroy God's people, that in the midst of, of, of opposition and struggle and challenge and difficulties that we face over and over and over again, in the midst of all of that, Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father saying, I got you. I wanna give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I wanna give you my authority and my power. And whatever I've called you to, I'm gonna equip you for. There is no scarcity in the kingdom of God. He's not looking up saying, I just don't have enough resources to give you guys right now. I just don't have enough leaders to send you right now. I don't have enough cars to give to the people who need cars. There is an abundance in heaven and he wants to pour it out on us, but he wants us to become a container that can hold the mission that he has for us. And so week after week, we walk faithfully and we pray that one day the signs and wonders show up. And so today, for all of us, I want us just to spend a minute thinking about where's the mess that you've been afraid to enter in? Where have you shrunk back from the place that God's called you to go? Where does your posture look more like the religious leaders than Stephen? Where is God calling you to step out and become the first follower? And what does it look like for us to just simply receive the pleasure of God and understand that there's an advocate that stands at the right hand of the Father saying, every single one of you in the room, that's my son, that's my daughter. I'm with you and I wanna do more. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use this time for your glory. I pray that your Holy Spirit would move and speak in this room. I pray that you would say the words that I can't say. I pray that you would challenge our hearts. I pray that you would bring both grace and truth into our lives. I pray that you would teach us to use power in a way that lifts up and empowers others. I pray that you would teach us to understand that we are the greatest of sinners in need of a savior and we're so thankful for you. I pray that we would never enter in to the us versus them mentalities, that we would never enter into the polarized way the world sees power and that we would be the people of God who say not so among us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that we would see signs and wonders that only you can explain. I pray that we would receive your authority and power. We pray, Father, for more because we know that there's more in you. We want more of your kingdom. We want more of your presence. We want more of your spirit. We want more of your power. We want more healings. We want more salvations. We want more baptisms. We want more forgiveness. We want more of all of you. We want more justice. So we come to you, Father, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and we say, Lord, would you teach us? Teach us to be obedient. Teach us to walk in your ways. Teach us to listen and obey. Teach us to be courageous. And may our lives look like the life of Stephen. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.
table there's communion stations in the front and in the back and we simply come forward and we take the bread and we take the juice remembering the sacrifice that Jesus gave on the cross for us remembering that our sins were paid for that it's wiped clean wiped as white as snow and we also come just as a time of reflection the reason we do this every week is is one it's 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 liturgical right it's something that gets us into the presence of God it allows us a moment after the sermon to reflect and just say Lord was there anything that was said that you want me to listen to Was there anything that you want me to pay attention to? Dallas Willard, who's one of my favorite writers and theologians, he says that anytime a sermon is preached, anytime we read scripture, there's something in that sermon that shines or shimmers or stands out to us. He says, if we're gonna be faithful followers of Jesus, what we do is we pay attention to that. And we say, "Why, why did that phrase matter to me? Why did that word challenge me? Why do I feel a little uncomfortable with this? Why is there a stirring in my heart around this? And we just pay attention to that. And we ask him, Lord, help me to pay attention to that. And so that's what we do. We go to the table. We just bring our stuff and say, Lord, would you help me to pay attention to you? Would you reveal to me? We have this crazy belief that God is always present and at work. And that the Holy Spirit wants to speak and move in our midst in this moment. And so we're going to enter in a time of worship, go to the communion tables. Um, I want to encourage you to pray with each other. I know I've been saying this for months. In, in, in our American culture, we have this belief that like communion is a personal thing. It's an individual thing. I would love it if our communion time became more of a family thing where we grab friends and pray for one another. Our prayer team is, is starting to gather on the sides here. And if you wanna pray with somebody, they would love to pray with you and talk with you or grab a friend and pray with them. Here's my one request. Don't be weird. Right? Don't be weird with one another. If there's somebody new, don't weird them out by praying weird prayers for them. All right? That's the only rule we have. Are we good with that? All right, let's go to the table and let's worship together.